0: Now 3000 years ago Israel's greatest singer and poet and songwriter King David asked this question if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do At a time in our history of our church like this it seems like the foundations are at least being shaken severely if not being destroyed We came through at the beginning of the year with a very significant solemn assembly that left us on the edge of anticipating, expecting and believing that God is going to do some very significant things in the life of our church. And the very first thing he does is takes Pastor Nancy home. We add to that the fact that uh, early in December, right on these steps, Pastor Heather fell and damaged her leg so severely that she's basically uh, unavailable, as it were, for several months. So it's not surprising that somebody would ask, what's happening to our church? And then you add to that the the, the fact of this horrible disaster in Haiti that also strikes very close to home. Because some of you may not know, Pastor Stevens is Haitian. And on Thursday as he and I were meeting for our regular one-on-one meeting, he got a phone call that his mother had lost 12 of her cousins. And that was then. And Joanne hadn't heard anything about it. There are righteous followers in that country. What will the righteous do when the foundations there have literally crumbled as well? So both locally and globally, this is a very pertinent question for us today. When the foundations are crumbling, what can the righteous do? Yesterday morning in our funeral celebration, I suggested to you three things that we should not be doing. And one thing that we should be doing, which is to set our hearts to gain wisdom in the light of the brevity and the unexpectedness, uh, unknown lifespan that each one of us have been assigned to. Today in Psalm 11, I want to continue that as the psalmist gives us three answers to his own question. Three more things that the righteous can do, which are very pertinent, both in relatively comfortable rec and totally chaotic port of prince and Haiti, and everywhere in between. Let's read the psalm together. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul... Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and the upright shall behold his face. The very first thing that he says when the, when the what can the righteous do when the foundations are crumbling is they can keep on believing in God. And very specifically he says that the Lord is on his throne. They can keep on believing that he is sovereign. As Sheila already mentioned to you not only on Wednesday but on on uh, the Thursday and Friday of Solemn Assembly every week, what we do as a staff in the afternoons, we, spend, we pray every afternoon during Solemn Assembly, but on the Thursday and Friday, we go as a team to each of the pastoral staff offices, and we pray for the individual whose staff uh, that office represents, and, and as for the office staff as well. And uh, when we were in Pastor Nancy's office, again, the very first thing, as soon as she sat down, joyfully she said, I want to be able to live under the sovereignty of God. <laughs> She had no idea that within less than 96 hours she would be seeing him on the throne face to face. So I have to think in retrospect there was a prophetic call to us as a church. Knowing that we will be facing these kinds of circumstances God is saying to us through her I want you to live under the light of the sovereignty of God. Specifically that he is sovereign over life and death. In Acts chapter 12 Uh, We read a story where King Herod had James arrested and was put to death. Seeing that this pleased all the opponents of the early Christian faith, he arrested Peter, intending to do the same thing to him as well. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 12 that the church prayed and Peter was miraculously released. Now here's my question for you. When you read that, do you ever pause to think why James was not released? Don't don't you think the church didn't pray when James was uh, put in jail? I bet you they did. So how come he wasn't released? How come Peter was? Sometimes the superficial answer to this, well, I guess they must not have had enough faith. We hear that so often. Well, actually, I'm sure the opposite must be true. If you prayed for James and he wasn't released, are you going to pray with more faith that Peter would be? I don't know, if I were you, I'd pray with much more hesitancy and less faith. Because we prayed and James wasn't delivered God. So that couldn't be the answer. The fact that James was put to death and Peter was released had nothing to do with faith. It had to do with the fact that God is sovereign when it comes to life and death. In Hebrews chapter 11, in that great faith chapter, it becomes even more specific and inescapable. When talking about the persecuted church, we find in Hebrews 11:34, By faith some escaped the edge of the sword. Three verses later in chapter 11, verse 37, it says, By faith some were put to death through the sword. Now you couldn't get more specific than that. Some escaped death by the sword and some were put to death by the sword, both by faith. So it has nothing to do with faith. It has to do with the sovereign dispensations of God as to who lives and who doesn't live. Here's another story from Acts chapter 23. When 40 Jewish leaders decided they were going to fast and pray and not eat or drink until they had killed the apostle Paul. And so they went to the Sanhedrin and said, "Just make some protest of getting, needing to ask him some more questions, so the Romans will let him have come to you, and we will lay in an ambush and we will kill him." Well, of course, some of you know the story. Paul's nephew, young fellow, overheard that story, went to the centurion, and he got a guard of 473 people. You know, so much for the 40 that wanted to try and kill him. This is all. God. Paul had no control over any of those events exactly the same thing is true in Pastor Nancy's life on the Tuesday morning after I picked up Duncan and Peter from the uh, subway station early in the morning driving home Peter was sharing about what the cardiologist had told him and after giving him a lot of details basically uh, to to cut through a lot of medical details it was a 1 in 50 chance that the things that happened happened to Pastor Nancy so who determines that somebody goes down the 1 in 50 route and someone goes down the 49 out of 50 route most of us would like to have the 14 That sounds like pretty good odds, right? But there's nothing to do with odds. There's no such thing as odds when it comes to God. God determines the outcome in every single case. My brother-in-law, Ramesh, was a medical doctor. We used to do a lot of work in the trauma units earlier on in his training. And he said, you know, some of the people would come in and I wouldn't give them a chance to live and they'd survive. Others would come in and we think it was an open and shut case, no problem. They'd be out in a couple of days and they never left. God is absolutely sovereign when it comes to matters of life and death. And the righteous in times like this can keep on believing that. They can also believe that he is righteous. This psalmist asserts the Lord is righteous. In times like this, there is a real temptation for us to charge God with error. And if not error, at least Indifference. Twice in the book of Job, in the opening chapters, we are specifically told, in all this, Job did not sin with his mouth in charging God with error. Even when his wife came to him and said, you foolish man, you're still holding on to your integrity, curse God and die. And Job wouldn't. Now, I haven't heard anybody struggle with that. In Pastor Nancy's home going, I didn't. But I have to say that when I read the stories of what happened in Haiti, I had to struggle a lot more. I said, God, why would you pick the poorest nation on earth and allow this to happen? And then why do it in the capital? When it happened, when that big earthquake hits China a couple of years ago, the capital was not uh, paralyzed, so people could still be involved. Now they can't even get into the airport. The prisoners are loose. The government is uh, in chaos. It's God. Why? Sounds sadistic, doesn't it? Well, I told you, you've got to ask these why questions. So, so there's a real temptation, a real danger to charge God at least with indifference to human suffering if not to error. Or arbitrariness. So it's not enough to believe that He's sovereign, we have to believe He's also righteous. You see, the irony is we think we're putting God to the test. It's exactly the other thing that's happening. <laughs> what does the psalmist say? The, the Lord is examining the righteous. We think we're putting God to a test tube and making decisions about Him. It's the other thing. That, it's the other way around. In times like this, He's putting the righteous to the test. I've told you many times before, the crisis never makes the man or the woman of God. The crisis only reveals what kind of people we already are becoming at that point the big difference between God testing us and the devil testing us it's exactly the same word in the original language is that when the enemy tests us it is always with the hope or the aim to get us to fail. So he can discredit the work of God and the name of God and accuse us. But when God tests us it is with youth strengthening us so that we can break through to a faith in invisible reality and still affirm that in spite of every appearance to the contrary God is sovereign and God is righteous. You see, it is that same fundamental temptation again that periodically we need to remind ourselves of. In times like this, we have one of two fundamental options before us. We can either start from our circumstances and make conclusions about God, or we can start from God and make conclusions about our circumstances. In the first case, you will be getting a tiny little island of meaning. You will not have to struggle with these big questions if God is not sovereign. But what you give up Is a huge sea of meaning. So you float around in a tiny little sea of meaning. And you have no large purpose in life at all. What kind of life are we going to live. If God is not sovereign. On the other hand. You do struggle with meaninglessness. At the tiny level. Why would God do this to Haiti. Why would God take Nancy away at this time. But what you have in exchange. Is a huge sea of meaning. God is still sovereign. God is still righteous. The foundations of the earth secure. And the psalmist faced this head on. That's what the opening verses are all about. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain. The mountains in the psalmist's time were the hills, the high places where the idols were worshipped. And so they represent an alternative to the worship of Jehovah. And what the psalmist is basically saying is because life is difficult and the foundations are crumbling, you want me to run to the mountains? You want me to take option A? I'm not going to take option A. I'm going to take option B and believe that God is sovereign and God is righteous. So that's the fundamental choice before us. This is the test that times like this put us into. Which of these two options are we once again going to take? Define our circumstances by who God is or define God by who our circumstances It makes all the difference, which is your starting point. So the righteous can keep on believing in God, that He's sovereign, that He's righteous. They can also keep on seeking God because the psalmist said, the Lord is in His holy temple. And we see God first and foremost in prayer and in worship kind of stuff that we're doing right now. And there is one particular psalm in the Bible, the 73rd psalm, that is so helpful in illuminating what happens when in times of perplexity we choose to come into the presence of God. The psalmist begins with another crisis of his own. He begins this way, he says, Surely God is good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. Meaning God is good to his covenant community and God is good to individuals who are living according to his law. Well, that's the theology. But then he takes a good look at life and says it's not working out that way in life. He says, but but as for me, he says, me, individually me, my feet had almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So basically he's saying theology and life are in a clash. Theology says to me that God is good to his people and God is good to those who are righteous. But life tells me it's the other way around. God seems to be good to all the wicked and he seems to be punishing us. Life is handing theology a solid thrashing at this point. And the natural temptation at that point, as he continues to think along those lines, he continues to focus on the evidence and there's plenty of evidence in visible reality, it would seem. And so in verse 14 he comes to the temptation, he says... Surely have I washed my hands in innocence. Surely have I kept my heart pure. Both at the level of internal holiness and external purity. He says, what's the point? What's the point when life beats up on theology like this? And then he says this. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Philosophical analysis and speculation only made matters worse. This tension between theology and life, when life seems to be beating up on theology, cannot be resolved by philosophical analysis and theological speculation. You know what he goes on to say? When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood. It is in worship that we resolve this tension, it is in worship that we break through. To the kind of understanding that does not oppress us, and you know what understanding he broke through. He goes on in the rest of the psalm to say, "Whom have I in heaven but you? And having thee, I desire nothing else on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you, O God, are the strength of my heart forever. Those who are far from you will perish, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I will make the sovereign Lord my refuge." You see, his the problem was not with the theology; he just had his definition of goodness all wrong. And in the sanctuary, that's what got resolved. God said, You just got your th- understanding of goodness all wrong. The goodness had nothing to do with what the wicked have. Ultimately, goodness is defined in terms of the privilege of access into the presence of a sovereign God. He says, As for me, it is good to be near God. Those who are far from you will perish. That's the ultimate goodness when you can break through to the fact that the very sovereignty that perplexed you is the sovereignty that becomes your refuge. That's why prayer and worship are so important to seek God. Because in the kind of perplexity that are facing us today, in God's taking Pastor Nancy home, and doing whatever he's doing in Haiti, there's a real temptation to figure all this out outside the sanctuary. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to get more and more oppressed. It's going to get heavier and heavier. And you you can't figure it out. That's the point. But when you come into the sanctuary. When you ask Him why. When you worship Him. And the kind of song that we have been affirming this morning. Then He becomes your refuge. Worship integrates you. Speculation outside the sanctuary tears you apart. By the way, inside the sanctuary, there's lots of room to speculate on theology. Then because mind gets sanctified, you see, then the one about whom theology is all about starts instructing us and teaching us. Which then leads us to the second thing. We not only keep on seeking God in prayer and worship, we, we keep on seeking God in listening to his voice through his word. We speak to him in our words of prayer and worship. He speaks to us through the word of God. There's another magnificent psalm that speaks to this. If Psalm 73 spoke to the first part of seeking God, Psalm 93 speaks to the second part of speaking God. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And then all of a sudden the floods come. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. When the poetry repeats three times, it is emphatic. The floods are strong. The floods are powerful. They tend to de- What What's the point having the world being established when the flood sweeps it away? When an earthquake wipes away port of Prince, what do you have to say then, God? Look at verse four. Three times. Three times the floods have lifted up their voice. Three times we read. Mightier than the thunder of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. So this chaos is sandwiched between the Lord reigns and the Lord is mighty. Evil is never the last word. It is limited. It is limited by a sovereign God on the one hand. The mighty God on the other hand. But this is the point for you and for me today. How does he exercise his might? Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house. He speaks. It's the word that he speaks into chaos that brings order into it. And holiness, so closely related in Hebrew to shalom, or peace. It is his word that comes into chaotic situations and speaks order and peace. Is that not what happened in Genesis 1? In the beginning, unshaped matter The earth was formless and void, shapeless and empty. And then God begins to speak his word. He doesn't have to just get up and flex his muscles. He just speaks. And slowly the shapeless gets shaped. The empty gets filled. And the Hebrew word bara, which means to radical newness, is only used in the Bible Old Testament with God as its subject. Man is never the subject of the verb to create radically new things. And yet when we started our study on Isaiah, you remember, I told you that bara and God as creator is used more often in Isaiah than even in Genesis. Because in Isaiah this time it was the people of God that were shapeless and empty. The temple had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The land had been razed to the ground. Israel had been sent into captivity to Babylon. No more king anymore. No prospect of ever going back to the land. Hope gone. Covenant gone. (laughs) Shapeless and empty. And all of a sudden they read Isaiah chapters 40 to 66. And all over again God creates. God creates hope. God creates faith. And a redeemed community. The remnant of God. And we'll learn about that as we pick up our studies in Isaiah again. Come back to the land eventually. And so it is today. And so we come in perplexing times into the presence of God. Seeking God in prayer and worship, but also saying, God, speak. The floods have lifted up their voice. Speak to me now. Speak your ordering words. Speak shalom into my heart. And he does. Let me give you some illustrations. Four of them, in fact. I had three last night and God gave me one more last night. Many of you know that one of the gifts God has given to Sham is, is an intercessor. Well, on Monday when she heard about Pastor Nancy's life-threatening situation, she went to prayer. And so on Tuesday when she got the news, she was devastated. She wept. But because God has given her a lifelong habit of seeking God in his temple and through his voice, she prayed. And then later on at about 11 o'clock when I went back to the house, she said, here were two things I was asking God for, and he spoke to me about both of them. First of all, as you heard yesterday, our grandchildren lost a magnificent godmother. And so Sham's question was, why Lord, why are, they need so much more of her still? <laughs> and then of course she was concerned for our church. Why would you take her away when there was so much ministry still left to do in this church? And so God gave her answers from the word for both of them. The first, thing, the first problem, um, issue he said, yeah, Nancy is not going to be with your grandchildren, but I'm going to be there. I will never leave them nor forsake them. And then, as for the church, she was reading that section where Isaac was digging the wells, you know, and after all those initial wells that may name trouble, this, that, and the other, the last one was Beersheba. And and God said, yeah, Nancy's gone, but this living water will continue to well up in Rexdale. And then, shortly after that, I got an email from one of our elders what God had spoken to him through the word of God. After the death of, this is where he was reading. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Moses died. God's purpose is not threatened one bit. Not retreat, but advance. This is what he wrote, uh, the comment that the elder gave after reading this. I was particularly blessed with a positive and forward direction the Lord gave Joshua in the midst of the death of Moses and its potential impact on his people. So those were two examples of how God spoke his ordering word into chaos. Well, the third experience was my own, the third and the fourth, in two different settings. Well, as I sat in the hospital on Monday, and as Peter called early Monday morning, and Duncan, and Sheila and I went over there, because both of us, I knew she was leading this worship service. And so uh, my mind always thinks ahead too. And when Peter told us the news that the doctors had given her, I thought, okay, we're going to have to redesign the whole Sunday service if, if, if the worst is to happen. So I started jotting down thoughts. And I came back Tuesday, jotted down more thoughts. But I didn't know what to say when. i would never been in the situation where I had to prepare two sermons for the same weekend of, of this kind of significance. I had all kinds of thoughts. (laughs) I thought, Lord, this is just like Genesis 1. In the beginning, there was all a hodgepodge of ideas and verses. But the sermon is shapeless and empty. And you know what God did Wednesday morning? I read, and like Frank reminds us so often, I didn't have to go looking. I just picked up the Bible where I'd finished reading the previous day. And I read Psalm 11. (laughs) God said, there's your answer. You organize everything around this. And it all fell into place. The word of the Lord again. Well, that's all I could share with the people last night. But last night at 11 o'clock, something else happened. You see, I have to leave this afternoon at 1.45 to go to Kelowna to speak at a pastor's conference. I don't feel like going. After a week like this, I want to be with my family. I want to be able to process. I want to be able to talk and think. So I was, I was not uh, too pleased about going. You know what I read last night? Jacob. He sent his wife and his children away, and he was all alone, and God jumped on him. You know. So, I don't know. So, all he said to me was, it's okay, this isn't the first time this has happened. You know. You're not sending them away, but I'm sending you away, and you're going to be alone for the next three, four days. It's also very gratifying to know that I don't have to make anything happen. Jacob wasn't in the least bit planning to have a wrestling match with God. God jumped on him, you know. So, I have, so you can pray for me. You can pray for the next three weeks. I have no idea whether uh, Florence and Eldon are most likely going to be driving down on Wednesday from uh, Vancouver, uh, from where they are at uh, Little Rock, to be able to uh, spend some time if possible. I have no idea why. I certainly didn't feel like going yesterday. And it still doesn't change what I would rather do. But I am going this morning with a lot more peace. Because His Word speaks order and chaos. So please. And you know, here's something else. Uh... I realized as I was putting this sermon together that today is only a starting point. The, the, the three don'ts from this last yesterday morning and these four do's, they're like starting blocks and a track to run on. You know like when athletes start or a swimmers get started, they have a starting block. They have tracks to run on, but it's all the organizers can do. Then the people have to swim and run. In a sense, all of this stuff is like giving you some starting blocks and giving you some tracks to run on. But if you want more than superficial answers to all the questions that you're undoubtedly wrestling with, you're going to have to do the running. I can't do this for you. Nobody else can do that. Your spouse can't do this for you. We can pray with you. We can teach you just like others teach us, but you have to do the running. You have to enter the sanctuary of God. You have to open the Bible and say, speak. And stay there long enough until he speaks. Okay, one more thing. They can keep on believing in God. They can keep on seeking God. And they can keep on being righteous. Because it says God loves the righteous in this song. And there are a couple of dimensions to it. One, the first one might surprise you. It wouldn't normally be what come to my mind except for the context. This is why the same passage of scripture in a different context gives you fresh insights. The, the part that God reinforced for me fresh was that being righteous means to hate sin. Now, where did I get that from? Well, think with me for a minute. The foundations that are crumbling for us, are shaking, is because of death. Death in our family, church family, wholesale death in Port-au-Prince. But where did death come from? The Bible tells us that death came into this world because of sin. Human sin, human rebellion, Adam and Eve's rebellion against Almighty God was what caused death to come into this world. So every death that happens is theologically rooted in the the sin of rebellion. Now what about a country like Haiti? That's earthquake, right? That caused that. Yes. What does Romans chapter 8 tell us? All of creation was subjected to bondage because of human rebellion. Not their sin, by the way, as some foolish leaders or Christian leaders are speculating these days. But humanity's. The, and the Bible tells us that the earth is groaning; creation is groaning. Earthquakes and floods and whatnot are all part of creation groaning because it is in bondage because of human sin. Well, it's okay, so true. But what's, what does that say to you and me about being righteous? Several months ago, I was listening to a sermon by John Piper, and I got an so insight that I'd never got before on this. Uh, at least, not seen it that way with that much force. Uh, and he said. If, if all, and he cataloged all the natural disasters that were in current at that particular time, all of the accidents that take little children away, you know. And he said, if this is all caused by death, by sin, and we hate the result, should we not be hating the cause? If we look at a child tragically crippled and restricted to a wheelchair, and we see that, and we are revolted by the disease, and we hate it, and we wished it didn't happen, he says, should you not be thinking about sin like that? When I want to turn my TV off, because I cannot bear to hear one more horrible story from Haiti, will I turn my TV off with that much hatred if I see something that is objectionable morally? When that's what caused the other, that's the point. And so in a time like this, we are reminded that righteous people will hate sin. Because it's the cause of what we naturally hate. And Piper talked about how once in a sermon, in a prayer meeting in his church, a mother came to that prayer meeting and she had in a wheelchair next to her, her sadly crippled child. He didn't mention the disease. And he said, I knew I was getting through to my congregation when I heard this mother pray, Lord, help me hate my sin the way I hate that disease and what it is doing to my child. You get the point? That's when it landed in my heart. That's the negative side of it. The positive side of it is we live a devoted life. That that amazing celebration yesterday morning reminded us of what one devoted life looks like. And so the righteous can keep on living a devoted life. Which means we'll be done with sloppiness. Nancy did nothing with sloppiness and we heard that yesterday. She was thorough and committed in everything she did. It means we will engage the chaos that we will emerge from the sanctuary where we have sought God, where we have heard His word speaking to us and then we will go and take other people into that sanctuary with us. How many times did you hear in that tribute how Nancy prays with people? And her memory already stimulated me twice to do that yesterday. Once in the afternoon and once later on. We will enter the chaos of a lost world as we engage ourselves seriously with global missions through our missions conference. We will engage ourselves as we serve in the chaos of lives much closer by as we work in neighborhood connections in various places. We will engage ourselves in, in the relative chaos in family ministries as we who are able and gifted to serve will serve. They are as varied as the unique person that God has made you to be. But righteous people will live a devoted life, and then the motive for all of this, the very last phrase in Psalm eleven says, "The righteous will see his face on that Friday afternoon uh, when we were praying in various offices, uh, one of the times we went into the boardroom because our biggest gathering was when we prayed for the office staff, so we had Bob putman and uh, the um, and uh, Sureshmi and Brenda. And Jan and James uh, were all there. And so we wanted to pray for them. And uh, I, I, I didn't know it, but the previous night, apparently James's van had given up or whatever. And so he'd be needing another van. And so Nancy knew about this. And Nancy had been praying for that van. And so the first thing she asked was, James, you get your van. And James did. He talk, told a story about how the very next day he found just the right van. And, you know, and Nancy was like a little child with a lollipop. And she was just so excited that her God would answer a prayer like this. And on Tuesday at staff meeting, when we were debriefing for the first time after Nancy's homegoing, Sue Wilson said, boy, she seemed almost giddy with joy. (laughs) Boy, if that made her giddy with joy, what was it like when she saw Jesus face to face? And Michelle Lorimer, who writes so many beautiful songs for us on the Tuesday morning as she and Sophie, her children were driving into mums and tots. Uh, This is what she said, and I have her permission to quote it. She said, Sophie and I too had commented on how bright and overwhelming the sun was. And many of you remember, Tuesday morning was a brilliant day during our drive. Now it's evening and I find myself reflecting on the fact that this morning Pastor Nancy awoke too, but her dawn was one that surpassed anything we have ever seen even on the best of sunny days for she has woken up to the son of righteousness, face to face radiant, glorious, laughing with joy to greet her, and how great a morning this would have been for her I can't help but feel a sliver of the joy she must be feeling even now the righteous shall see her face and then a, a day later, Jeanette Nowers, who worked so closely with Nancy, sent me uh, an assurance of prayer for us. And by the way, thank you so many of you. You know, over and over again, you've said you prayed for us. And I thought, Lord, this is an ironical slip. Normally we pray for you. This whole week, you prayed for us. Thank you so much for that. And Jeanette's email was that. And then she quoted the words of a well known hymn that just picks up the refrain from here. When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side and His smile will be the first to welcome me. Oh, the soul-thrilling rapture when I view His blessed face and the luster of His kindly beaming eye. How my full heart will praise Him for the mercy, love and grace that prepares for me a mansion in the sky. Through the gates to the city in a robe of spotless white He will lead me where no tear shall ever fall. In the glad song of ages I shall mingle with delight but I want to meet my Savior first of all. I shall know him, I shall know him when redeemed by his side. I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hand. And you know when I read that I felt compelled I needed to say one more thing. Just in case there is somebody here who has still not committed their life to Jesus Christ. It is only because of the print of the nails in his hand that his face will be a wonderful sight. Apart from that it will be a terrifying sight. And you will run and flee like the people in Revelation who begged for the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. So do not wait, because you do not know when you will stand face to face with. So, when the foundations are crumbling, what can the righteous do? They can keep on believing in God, that He is sovereign and He is righteous. They can keep on seeking God in prayer and worship and in listening to His voice through His word. And they can keep on being righteous. They can hate sin and they can live a devoted life because one day they will see Him face to face. Again, I'd like to do my benediction in two parts today. First of all, all of you who were involved in any way in helping us with that celebration service yesterday morning, will you please stand? If you served in various ways, parking lot, you prepared food, you brought it here, you cleaned up, wherever you are, just stand up. Thank you so much, so many of you. And I just, my blessing for you is that you will know the joy of having people come to you when you need help. And may you who served so graciously and so gladly, may you also be recipients of that service in your time of need. Thank you so much for your work for behalf. And now I'd like all of you to stand up, please. In those times and seasons in your life when uh, life is beating up on theology, May you know the strong arm of the Lord reaching down and bringing you into the sanctuary of God. And there may he show you what goodness really is. (laughs) May the sovereign Lord become your refuge and may you become a witness of his glory. Go in Jesus.